Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's just so many nuances to every single credit card. What is the interest rate? Does it have an annual fee? What credit score do you need? What perks does it have? I think it's not an ideal outcome for the consumer. However, I think that because it's complicated, the more informed you are, the more you're able to, I guess, take advantage of what's out there. Whenever there's information asymmetry, it's like if you have the information, you can actually end up better. So yes, it's complicated, but if I can help people learn how the system works, I can help them fight back. Earlier this week, I was in London for TransUnion's Financial Services Summit. It's an event that holds a special place in my heart and indeed in my career. Presenting research at the 2019 edition was my last act for the Hong Kong team, just as presenting at the 2021 edition, then still virtual, was my last act as a TransUnion employee overall. And as a guest, it was an equally valuable experience. Albeit after seeing so many old friends, I had a slightly rough start to the next morning. But let's go back to that event in Hong Kong. There, my boss and friend, Charlie Wise, presented my favorite piece of research I've ever done. It was a study born out of an earlier mistake, in a way. You see, I'd previously been asked by clients to look in the data for drivers of market share. And long story short, I'd come to the conclusion, like many before me, that if you wanted a bigger share of total credit card spend, you needed a bigger share of total credit card limits. But then I realized something. Measuring market share at a total level is for schlubs. It's something I'd always done, maybe because I'd come from big banks where it does kind of make sense. But when you get down to it, market share is for sale. If you want to be the biggest credit card in the market, you can be for a price. What money can't so easily buy is the title of first card in wallet. And that's what my study was about. I had recognized that one of the credit bureau's greatest data assets is the fact that they can see which credit cards coexist in any one wallet. And that's really where the action happens. So some context quickly. In Hong Kong, if you have a credit card, you probably have four or five in your wallet. In a four-card wallet, the favorite card got 75% of all spend on average. The second card in the hierarchy got 15%. Three and four are fighting on the ground under the table for scraps. So if you genuinely want to grow your card spend or your card balances, you could spend billions to get your card into five times as many people's hands. Or you could focus on moving the cards you already have out there up the hierarchy, leveraging all the benefits of already having established that client relationship. And how do you do that? Well, it's not through credit limit increases. If you don't keep your limit in line with the competition, you may fall down the hierarchy. But that's not how you climb. To climb, you need a better product offering. It could be air miles. It could be cashback. It could be a low annual fee. In fact, today, it could be just about anything. Which is why I'm speaking to Chris Hutchins, host of All the Hacks, 
one of America's favorite podcasts and an expert on what makes a credit card offering attractive in today's marketplace. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. Chris Hutchins, host of All the Hacks. Welcome to my little show. I'm just back from a holiday in South Africa, which I mention now, well, because everyone listening should visit if they haven't, but also because a trip to South Africa marked a pivotal moment in your own life. So let's change things from my normal structure here and start the episode by saying you're in the aeroplane, you're flying south, sitting next to your wife. What are you doing and how did you get there? Well, first off, thank you for having me. I haven't traveled like I traveled in that story, so you're bringing back really fond memories. Uh, You'll learn through this conversation that I'm a bit of an optimizer. So the trip to South Africa was maybe the most convoluted path I've ever taken. So we lived in San Francisco. We wanted to get to South Africa. So we flew from San Francisco to DC, where my family was. We said hi. We took a bus up to New York. We flew from JFK to Cairo. We flew from Cairo to Khartoum in Sudan. We flew from Khartoum to Nairobi and then Nairobi to Johannesburg. (laughs) And so we land in Johannesburg with no agenda. We had no hotel. We had no plan. We had nothing. She was done with a company that she didn't like working for and she was ready to move on. And I was doing some freelance work and we thought we should probably just take a trip. And one thing led to another and we went down this path of let's just take a long extended trip where we basically sell everything, move out of our apartment, pack two backpacks and see what happens. So we land in Johannesburg, and the first thing I do is I get a a local SIM card, and I call the one friend I know in South Africa who's in Cape Town, and I said, okay, we're here. What should we do? And he's like, well, you don't want to stay in Johannesburg. You should come to Cape Town. (laughs) Like, you don't come to South Africa. you got to come to Cape Town right now. So I said, okay. So I go to look. I try to buy a ticket to Cape Town. For whatever reason, they're completely sold out. So we flew then. After all those flights, we flew from Johannesburg to Durban, and then Durban to Cape Town. (laughs) It was the the kickoff to what ended up being a seven and a half month overland backpacking trip with no agenda other than to keep the budget under $30 a day. A life-changing trip, I'm sure. But tell me, before you took this grand adventure, what was your career like? What was your life like leading up to that point? When I graduated college, about, let's say, six months before, I didn't know you were supposed to get a job before you graduated. I went to a state school in Colorado. I, you know, it just never, no one ever kind of told me, oh, you need the job, you know, far enough in advance. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I didn't have time to figure it out. I just said, what's the best job you can get out of college? And people said, oh, investment banking and management consulting. Uh, so I applied for a bunch of jobs and ended up getting a job uh, at an investment bank and a management consulting firm. One of the jobs started nine months after graduation. I accepted both. Uh, I just did one and I thought I had a nine month option. And at the end of nine months, I was like, ah, investment banking isn't for me. Let's take management consulting. <laughs> you know, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I liked solving problems. I liked learning. Uh, those careers afforded me that opportunity. But those careers are really poor options for people who I would say have that entrepreneurial itch. You know, you get to a company and you're like, oh, I have a really big idea. And it's like, well, we're not looking for you to do a big idea. We're looking for you to make this spreadsheet or this presentation or something like that. Add two careers that don't famously leave you much time in the afternoons or the evenings to think about other things as well, I imagine. Not at all. And I went to this event called Startup Weekend. It was a bunch of engineers, designers, everyone just trying to create companies over the weekend. 
we built some silly product that was a Windows app that would remind you to stretch. But like in two days, we built a piece of software, we shipped it, and we had people that weren't just our parents and our friends and our family using it. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a career. I, where can I do this? And I was like, you got to go to San Francisco. That's where all the startups are being built right now. This was 2007, 2008. Uh, and I was like, okay, that's it. I go to my company and I say, I would love to move to San Francisco. They had an office there. And they said, okay, we'll move you out there. No problem. I move out there October, 2008. And then as soon as I get there, about a month later, they're like, thank you for moving out here. We no longer have a job for you. And I was jobless trying to figure out what to do in this new city. And you know, I wanted to be there, but I wanted a salary to pay the rent also. <laughs> I was trying to figure out what to do. And I was like, God, there's so many smart people in this city. How do I just learn from all of them? How could maybe some of the skills I know help other people and vice versa? And so I had this crazy idea to start a conference for people who'd been laid off or who were freelancing and just didn't have traditional employment. And we called it Laid Off Camp. It was completely volunteer driven. No one made any money. But we ended up doing a huge event in San Francisco that got a lot of press. And that led to, I, I put up a wiki and was like, if you want to do one in your event, here's the email I sent to sponsors. Here's the schedule. Here's how I did everything. And I ended up helping you know a handful of people put on events around the country. And there ended up being 20 or 30 laid off camps all around the country for the next year, maybe a couple in Canada, but it didn't make money. But I learned from the sponsors I had about a few opportunities to do some freelance work. You started getting so obviously more into the, the startup space. When did that really convert into full on business startups? Was that before or after you took that big trip? So I'd started working with these companies and realized like, this is what I want to do. I want to work at these, I want to build startups. I want to build companies from scratch with software. And however, my wife was kind of stressed out with her job. And I had these three consulting projects that all ended at the same time. And we said, well, let's just maybe before I go all in, let's take a trip. We put this map on the wall, uh, like an actual physical map. And we got push pins and we said, where should we go? And uh, we each had some pins and we started putting them in. And by the end, we were like, this is a lot of places. And I started doing research, and I'd never even thought about the fact that you could take a very extended trip. You could you know, pack your bags. And the budget you need, I think we each spent about $7,000 each for seven and a half months. And I know there are lots of people listening where $7,000 is a lot, but there's also, I know a lot of people who are like, I've planned a trip for three weeks that was $7,000. That trip was, I would say, a very pivotal moment for me because traveling around the world really showed me a lesson that I didn't know existed, which was everyone in the world does things differently. And it works. We spent about two months in Africa, two months in the Middle East, a month in India, and two months in Southeast Asia. And like, in those places, people live very different, yet very similar lives. You know, they're all happy, there's family, there's food, there's, there's the common things. But the way you live, the way you operate, the way you communicate, the way you walk and get around, it's very different in different places. And, and it still works. And I think I realized, gosh, I should never assume that the way I'm doing something is the most optimal way because I've now been exposed to so many other ways that are optimal for other people. And that really turned me into kind of a little bit of a crazy optimizer in terms of trying to find ideal outcomes, be it for business or personal or anything. That talent you've got for optimizing is obviously now being reflected in your podcast, All the Hacks. You're now making a career out of helping other people to navigate the complex world of points and miles to upgrade their life, their money and their travel, I think is your, your tagline. So talk to me a little bit about your show and how you got 
from being really good at optimizing for yourself into making a podcast out of that. Ever since that trip, I've kind of had this, there has to be another way. And then when that expanded to other things, it just kind of became how I operated. So if someone said, oh, how are we going to, you know, everything from raise our kids to buy a car to live on our home, I just thought maybe there's another way. So I didn't know there was a house hacking movement. But when we bought our first house, we saw this house that had three bedrooms and one of them had its own door to the exterior. And immediately we were like, well, great, we can buy a three bedroom house, which we couldn't necessarily afford but we could rent out one room, lock it off to the house as a studio that would offset the mortgage. And then in five years, if we wanted to start a family, we could just not have a tenant. Hopefully we could afford it more by then. And now we wouldn't have to go buy a new house. And like these things of just looking at everything from a different way and trying to understand how it might work. I think somewhere during the pandemic, I had a handful of friends say, hey, every time we have dinner, you're sharing these like crazy, unique little angles you're taking. But we haven't had dinner in the last year because nobody's really out having dinner. You know, could we just do like a Zoom call and you could just share whatever you've learned? There's got to be some hacks you've been figuring out. And I thought, hmm, maybe I should just record things for people. You know, there's a company called Loom, which was like, you know, lets you kind of record your screen and your voice. And I've become a big fan of it. And I thought, oh, what if I just record this? I have a microphone. Maybe I'll just start a podcast. And maybe I'll not only share the things I love, but I'll just... I'll go learn more of them because now I have this excuse to go ask the smartest, most interesting people in the world how they optimize various aspects of their life, things that I haven't figured out. So I started recording a few and sending it around. And next thing I knew, there were you know hundreds of thousands of people listening to this podcast. And I thought, okay, well, this is my thing. Right now, it's about a third travel points and miles. It's about a third money, uh, both deals and savings and, and kind of different hacks there, but also just investing for the long-term And then the rest is life, career, negotiating, family, relationships, happiness, everything else. And so each week we interview interesting people uh, or I do an episode myself. Now, in that show, obviously, all the hacks, you are focused on helping consumers to optimize their lives. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today, I'm going to mainly talk about credit cards. So you get a lot of consumers in there asking for help in what is the best credit card for them to choose or how to use their wallet full of credit cards to their best advantage. It leaves me wondering for my audience who are issuing credit cards, is its message getting through to the customers out there? Do you think is maybe a problem that someone like you is needed to to really wade through this and, and tell somebody what's right for them 
It's funny. I thought uh, a couple weeks ago, I was like, you know what? What if I could just build an algorithm so that I don't have to constantly try to understand what the best thing is now with the latest offerings? It could just sort through all the cards automatically. And I was like, okay, this should be easy, right? It should be easy to just rank order cards. And, and if you had some preferences, do it more efficiently. And then I went down this path. I was like, man, there's just so many nuances to every single credit card. What is the interest rate? Does it have an annual fee? Uh, you know, what credit score do you need to be eligible for it? What perks does it have? You know, what credits do they offer to try to offset that fee? But not just what did the credits offer, but like, what can you use them for? There might be a travel credit. And with one card, it's just spend money on travel and we'll reimburse you. But the other card, you have to go book in their portal, but they don't support all the airlines. So you could book flights, but not all the flights. And it can be complicated. And I thought, gosh, I don't know if I can make this algorithm. <laughs> uh, I'm still thinking about how I could do it and how to value points versus credits and those kinds of things. But I think it's not an ideal outcome for the consumer. However, I think that because it's complicated, the more informed you are, the more you're able to, I guess, take advantage of what's out there. You know, whenever there's you know, information asymmetry. It's like, if you have the information, you can actually end up better. So I, I tend to think, yes, it's complicated, but if I can help people learn how the system works and and what is actually ideal for them or, you know, for people like them, I can help them kind of fight back against a system that is trying to, in some ways, maybe be a little bit, misleading is maybe the wrong word, but like lead with one uh, benefit and try to capture you with something that maybe isn't as beneficial. Like this is the best card for X, but oh yeah, it actually has a really high interest rate. So maybe it's not good. They're not going to tell you, oh, it's not good for you if you're this person. Yeah, there's that sort of how much duty is there for you to fully explain the downsides. And in an episode that will come out probably just before yours, Elena Botea, who's written a book on the lending industry, and one of the exercises she encourages is to vocalize the worst aspects of your product. I don't know, like from the work that you're doing and, and finding out from customers out there, kind of what are they misunderstanding or what are they not getting? Do you think there is a way that the industry can get better at communicating these programs and the, the pros and cons of their, their products? This idea of trying to win the, the primary card is even harder because I can carry around, you know, 15 cards on my phone and I don't, I don't even need a big wallet. But to your question, um, I mean, it might come at the expense of corporate profit, which I think is always a hard thing to come up against. So, you know, a great example to me is in the US, uh, if you fly United Airlines, the United Airlines card will give you two points, two United miles per dollar you spend on United. But the Chase Sapphire Reserve card will give you three Chase points that you can convert one to one into United points. So, it seems to the average consumer like, gosh, I'm going to spend a lot on United. Of course, the best credit card for me is the United credit card. How could it not be? Like they're designing and marketing this card just for me. And in this one particular case, it's actually not the best card for you. Now, I tend to say that my rule of thumb is all of these airline cards are great for the benefits that come with them, the free check bags, the maybe priority boarding, all those kinds of things. But beyond the perks you really need to actually look in to find out, is spending money on this card actually the most ideal thing to do? And it's hard you know, for, for banks to make it more and more transparent. And I don't think they're doing a horrible job. I think it's very easy to learn all of the features and the nuances of the cards if you want to. But when you're trying to compete with hundreds of cards, 
the offering can't just be one thing. It's got to be five or six different things. And the more things you add to try to be competitive, the harder it is to stand out. The City Premier card is an interesting card that many people I know haven't really heard of. And it gives consumers three points per dollar on, I think it's gas, groceries, air travel, uh, hotels, and dining, which is like all the major categories. Yet the value prop, even I, having given that statement multiple times, I, I always have to question, wait, what are the five things? Like it's, it's not clear and concise. And so even I, as an expert in the industry, keep forgetting. Whereas I think what made Chase so successful with the Chase Reserve card, aside from a few other things, was they came out and they said, three points on travel and dining. That, that was like the pitch. And when the Chase Sapphire Premier card came out before, it was 2x on travel and dining. And they tried to make the pitch so concise. They weren't trying to win you with other things. I think it made it a lot easier. But now even that card has been kind of, the reserve is kind of not as popular. They've given some of the perks to other cards. And now to stand out, you have to come up with more and more benefits that make it harder and harder to explain. Let's stay in that space here about the features. Obviously, within credit cards like Air Miles, as long-standing, being around as a as a, a perk from cards. But in terms of the features you're seeing now that are attracting people or that are attracting you, what are the kind of best offers you're seeing out or the, the best features on cards that you're seeing advertised at the moment? So if you talk to a lot of the industry folks, the Air Miles cards have gone down in uh, you know popularity with, with the people, I guess, who spend the most time here. And the best feature that I think Amex was first, then Chase, then either Capital One or City, and then the other was allowing you to take points and transfer them to multiple places. And so I would say that was the biggest feature that's changed a lot of the perspectives in the points industry is I'm not tied into a thing. It used to be I either want Delta miles or I want cash back or I want Marriott points or Marriott points, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, or cash back. Now you could get a chase point which could be cash back, you could use it in the portal, you could go get a gift card, or you could transfer it to Hyatt, or you could transfer it to United. And that flexibility, I think, actually makes those points more valuable. But that flexibility also leaves many people, and and myself often included, accruing points and then being stressed out about, okay, well, I want to make sure I use them optimally, but I don't know how to do that. And so I, I guess I'm not going to use them. And I think we've gotten this amazing benefit that might have some unintended consequences. So the transferability of points is a big one. I think for the consumer, the incredibly large signup bonuses that banks are willing to offer you uh, in the United States, at least, and, and in I know also in Australia and probably a few other countries are just so wild. You know, if you look at the value of some of these signup bonuses, they could be anywhere from a thousand to two or three thousand dollars to get you to open up a card and spend, you know, some money, maybe a few thousand dollars over a few months on the card. And their hope is that you're going to stick around and be a loyal user of this card for, gosh, I have to imagine half a decade or more in order to pay back these huge signup bonuses. But for the consumer, it's a huge win. So my threshold is like, if they're going to offer you 70,000 points uh, or more, that is a, a threshold where I'm excited about the bonus. And if it's less, uh, I'm I'm less excited unless it's hotel points. And generally hotel points are about anywhere from half to a third as valuable as airline miles. So a hotel would need to be like 150,000 or more to be exciting to me. If you're that first card, the default card on Apple Pay, 
that's probably a really good position because I think I just double click the side of the phone and pay. And unless it says we don't take American Express, you know, and it buzzes, then I'll get another card out. But I'm not actually even thinking about it, just the phone paying. So maybe it's even more important today when that card is virtual and, and sitting almost invisible. There's a, an app that I, I use all the time called Card Pointers. And uh, the, the founder of this app, Emmanuel, spent a bunch of time working on iOS 16 before it came out and, and was featured as like, you know, top 10 iOS 16 apps. And he's building in these features where there's widgets that will pop up and kind of remind you what you should be using in what particular place. And we're not at the point yet where it could remind you in real time, oh, you're about to pay at the grocery store and actually swap the Apple Pay card. Like that would be the magic um, would be, oh, you know, I'm in the grocery store. So when I double tap the button, pull up my, my card that's best for groceries. I don't know. I don't know if Apple will ever relinquish control of the selecting or, or how that would work. Or, uh, but I, I think there is at least the possibility of that getting to a point that cards are going to really struggle to compete because they, they, there's no pole position, uh, and they're going to have to compete on other things like strange perks. But these perks that cards offer have used to be so cool. I mean, the first card that said, oh, you get a priority pass membership, which lets you go to airline lounges was really cool. Now I could probably list six or seven different credit cards that all offer priority pass memberships. I have three of them, which means like I I go to the lounge. I'm like, which one of my three memberships do I want? I have no benefit of the other two. And, you know, if you're in the United States and you pay an annual fee on a card, you probably get free TSA pre-check or global entry reimbursed every five years cards are having to try to get creative, but then it just makes the cards more complicated to use. I think there's also embedded in there an important lesson for credit card issuers. So when I was in Hong Kong, uh, I was working for a credit bureau. And one of the nice things with the data at the credit bureau is you can see which cards are in the same wallet. So which five credit cards all link to one person. Consumers have their favorite card. And if you're that favorite card, there's a massive benefit. So this is a rough numbers, but if someone's got four cards in their wallet, the first card's getting something like 75% of the spend. So you really want to be there. And you don't get there from a, a higher credit limit. You get there from a better product fit. And once I started looking at that, I could identify these cards in the market. Some were big bank brands that had billboards everywhere, celebrity endorsements. They were very popular, but there were also these little cards very small market share issued by small players for small niches, but they hit their niche. Maybe they were like linked to a Japanese store and a Japanese airline. And when they were in a wallet, they were really successful. And it made me rethink what success means and it pointed me far more to this product aspect. And then that calls out the complexity you've had with your thinking of your algorithm. Then there's not one person. We can't think about Chase trying to make a card that serves 50 million people. It's sort of how do you hit that niche? And I wonder if you've got any thoughts on what sort of niches exist in the market, what type of customers do you see, and maybe which way do you think card companies should be looking to get a really successful card product out there in the current environment? The average person that I see is using one card for everything. And maybe, maybe, maybe they have a second card tied to a retailer. It's surprising how powerful that point of sale do you want 20% off this purchase at Nordstrom or Bloomingdale's or something gets you to open a card or at Target so when i think about this question about niche cards and broad cards the card that first came to mind to me was the the Chase Freedom Flex 
because Chase launches this card that gets you 1% cash back. And each quarter, you get 5% cash back on a, a different set of categories, but you don't know what they are. So like, I think this quarter, this coming Q4, it's like PayPal and Walmart or something like that. And I'm like, okay, but like, this can't be a card for me before I know, if I don't even know who I'm going to be able to earn, you know, outsized rewards from. But it's a great second or third or fourth card on the off chance that, oh, wow, I'm, I, pay, I think PayPal is Q4. You better believe that in Q4, I'm going to be checking out with PayPal on every retailer on the internet, uh, you know, to earn 5% five, 5 back, uh, which it turns out you can also convert to those transferable points. But it's a card that I think only appeals to the average consumer because it's a much easier card to get into with a lower credit score. And so I think one big niche area that I don't think has been experimented that well, and, and maybe it's because the the cost of serving that customer is higher because lower credit tends to lend to you know more default. Uh, but the entry cards, there's such a huge gap between what you get from the entry cards. I think if you're if you're from the United States and you went to university or even went to university here there were people that walk around campus trying to get you to sign up for a card to get $20, you know, to sign up for the card. And, and they're pay you get almost nothing. I don't even know if you get points on these, a lot of these cards that target college students. And, you know, they, they don't offer any kind of credit protect, you know, it's very easy to get them. You don't need high credit score, but the, the market for, I don't have credit yet is currently served by cards that I think are quite, I assume have to be quite profitable for banks because they're giving up almost nothing. They keep all the interchange. They keep, you know, there's no sign up bonus. There's no nothing other than maybe $20, $50 or something. So I think that's an area where we haven't used a lot of data or technology to try and figure out how you could offer a premium experience to someone who doesn't yet have credit. So there's a company that if you haven't talked to, you should called Nova Credit, um, which has tied with international credit bureaus to try to give people who have credit in other countries credit in the United States. But something that could tie to your bank account or tie to the fact that you do have an employment, you do have income coming in, so you could kind of validate someone more than just their credit score and maybe give them an offer or a card that is actually compelling versus just the only card they can get. Yeah, I, I've spoken to Misha and I think he's still one of my top three most downloaded episodes. I think this growing wave of consumer loyalty to content over product is becoming really interesting. You know, let's take Mr. Beast, the YouTube creator, who has maybe one of the largest followings of anyone on the earth, has now opened a chocolate brand and a fast food burger brand, which is somewhat fascinating to think that is there a world where Mr. Beast chocolate or Mr. Beast burger is bigger than Hershey's or McDonald's in five or 10 years because the consumers uh, just don't care about the legacy loyalty of the brand as much as they care about the person associated with it. And so I think a card issuer who is willing to take bets outside of traditional corporate partners, so not just airlines and hotel groups and the new ones that pop up and the large transportation companies that are already big public companies, but what about some of these kind of influencers or creators or people that have transcended just like a TikTok channel, but really become like global brands as people or as content brands. Uh, I don't know what becomes of that, but it would surprise me if there is not, you know, a Mr. Beast card, uh, you know, sometime in the next few years. And 
you know, the loyalty that he has with his audience. And, you know, I think is something that's not to be overlooked. And historically, the way it's worked is you've had companies like, I think Acorns has a card that's really more of a debit card tied to their product, but then they worked with celebrities to kind of endorse it. But why aren't those celebrities, uh, you know, issuing their own cards? And and many of them have a, a household name, but not a household engagement strategy other than be in the movies every few years. But I think with content online, we now have at least a dozen or so people with massive, like bigger than, you know, most consumer brand uh, engagement with an audience that could be ripe for partnership for card issuers to do something with. What we want to do is we want to get people really engaged. And it's hard to do that as a, as a bank. It's hard to get people excited about you if you're a, you're a 400 year old bank with marble pillars outside the front door. So, But imagine how cool it would be if a bank said, okay, well, here are all the kinds of things a card could offer. It could offer lounge access. It could offer points multiples on certain categories. It could offer a 0% APR for certain number of months. It could have a variable annual fee. And you could essentially give people the ability to create their own thing. So you could say, I want a bonus on this category, and I want this perk, and I want this fee, and maybe the other things fall in line, and you could custom generate a card. Historically, it was like, you know, if you have an association or a sports team, you can create an easy co-brand, you put the logo on, and 1% goes to you. But like that was the extent of customizing. And I've looked at this. I was like, oh, what if I want an all the hacks credit card? Chase would never want to talk to me, right? Like it just, it was not in their interest right now because they can't scalably support it. But there's no reason they couldn't build a better version of these affinity cards where there's a bit of a menu of services and features and offerings. I don't know. It just seems interesting. And I haven't seen anyone try to do it. Yeah, I don't want to make anybody else their their fortune. But yeah, it sounds like a great idea. If people are interested in upgrading their lives, they're interested in learning from you about these various hacks that you've discovered yourself, where should people go to find out more about all the hacks? If you're listening to this, you're listening to a podcast. So you can search for all the hacks right here, where all podcasts are. Um, You can go to allthehacks.com. We have a newsletter. You know, I would say normally if you're not a podcast person, then, you know, we try to get a lot of the same content in the newsletter. But if you're not a podcast person, you're probably not here right now. But the website has all the old episodes, all the newsletter back issues I've written. You know, you can email me. I I share my email in every episode. So you just have to listen to one episode and you can get my email. And uh, I try to answer all the questions from people about anything. You can find me on social media. I'm at Hutchins on Twitter. Perfect. I'll put all those in the show notes as well. But yeah, as I say, the episodes I listened to were just so dense with information. Uh, it's not just buy this card. And you really describe very well the sort of person it's working for and why you're making your recommendations. So everyone tune in. Chris, thank you so much for making the time to join my show. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. Please do look for and follow the show on your favorite podcast platform and share the updates widely on LinkedIn where lending nerds are found in our largest concentration. Plus, send me a connection request while you're there. This show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England, and edited by Fina Charlson of FC Productions. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find show notes and written transcripts at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show or just www.htlmts.show, and I'll see you again next Thursday.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.